Welcome to the EBFC Show, the easier, better for construction podcast. I'm your host, Felipe Engineer Manriquez. This show is all about the business of construction. Today's episode is sponsored by the Lean Construction Institute. LCI is working to lead the building industry in transforming its practices and culture. Its vision is to create a healthy and thriving industry that delivers outstanding project outcomes every time for everyone. Join me and many others from the Lean Design and Construction community at their 22nd Annual Congress. It is being held virtually this year, the week of October 19th. Our theme is the ABCs of Lean, transformation through actions, best practices, and coaching. Register at www.lcicongress.org forward slash 2020. Check the show notes for more information. Thank you, LCI. Now, to the show. I would challenge you, Felipe, that you're not, you're not doing the entire ROI on this. Because this discussion you and I are having right now, if, if, if we get more than 10 people who watch this and, yeah. and get something out of this, but yeah. absolutely, if we if we dance, both of us come out of it better dancers. That's for sure. Because mm-hmm. you know, like a good general contractor, we got to track it. Why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself, Mister Mike Williams? Tell tell the audience something about yourself. Uh, yeah, Mike Williams. Uh, I'm an architect with 31 years of experience. The end of this year, uh, almost exclusively in the healthcare area of architecture, some laboratories and other high tech. Uh, uh, buildings thrown in there. Um, my background with lean and with lean construction and lean design actually kind of accidentally started in the 1990s uh, when I read an article about value stream mapping um, that was related to uh, a publication or a, and actually a research paper done by MIT. And I began to apply uh, my understanding of value stream mapping at the time uh, to emergency department design. Um, didn't even know the term lean at the time. I don't think I heard that term until probably 2003 or four. And somebody pulled me aside and connected, well, what you've been doing is actually value stream mapping, which is part of the lean toolkit. That happened about 2007 wow. uh, when I started to line these things up. But um, so I guess I was doing lean before I really kind of knew it. Um, but uh, that always intrigued me. I've always been process driven. Uh, as you know, strength finders, I'm a problem solver, which yes, I, do. I always, I always line up uh, whatever I do in a series of events and move through them one at a time. So it made a lot of sense for me. No, thank you, Mike. Yeah, ever since the first time I met you and I feel like, you know, you're one of those people that, that I've met and I feel like we've just been, we've known each other way longer than we really have. I think we've actually only known each other for about what four and a half years, going yeah. on five years. Yeah, seems like seems like longer, but yeah, yeah, it does seem like longer. I remember the first time talking to you, I was just perfectly at ease. You totally disarmed me, and I was so curious. To there might have been a, an adult beverage in our hands too at the time. It could have been. I don't know if that was at one of the uh, Improving Capital Project symposiums or when you were teaching Scrum out at the job site. But yeah, I remember uh, one of those two times. They were both, I think, the same week. Uh, yeah. I don't remember which one was first, but yeah. 
Yeah, I remember watching you uh, walk the, the project team through Scrum. I sat in the back and watched uh, carefully. And I, if you remember, I had a, a number of questions for you. Oh, yeah. uh, I wasn't answered your questions. I, I was answering your questions with questions, <laughs> which I think <laughs> did disarm you. Which I love. No, because it shows uh, – I like when people do that because you, you're thinking totally differently. And even if you're leading the witness, which you may have been, it's still fun to play and dance that way. Yeah. And it's, it's, Scrum is one of my favorite topics of all time. Like I could talk about that for 24, 48 hours straight and not even take a break. So your enthusiasm for Scrum, uh, quite frankly, when I watched it the first couple of times, I, I wasn't that impressed with it. <laughs> but your enthusiasm for it – uh, made me dive deeper um, uh, in your total belief in the system made me dive deeper. And then, as you know, we started applying it both to that project in, in specific, as well as to our own office uh, for task play. And it's been, it's been fantastic. Every, every new PM we bring in and teach it, uh, they kind of wonder why they didn't know it beforehand. Yeah. Uh, there's always that light bulb that happens about the third day, right? The first day is, what are we doing with post-it notes on the wall? Um, <laughs> second day is, well, that kind of worked okay. And the third, fourth day, it's kind of like, hey, you know, uh, people are actually lining up their tasks and doing them. Uh, yeah. And we can see the flow, which is, in my opinion, the visual side of what we do in the lean toolkit is more valuable than sometimes the process themselves. Uh, being able to visualize the work is a key. Yeah, I always tell people like all of these tools, they're all about you know, enabling us to do what we want to do, what we're passionate about. Like for me, I'm mm -hmm. not passionate about making sticky notes. That's not, that's not it. Pictures that you sent me of your, your office using Scrum. I was just floored. Like, man, that's it. Like you got it. Like your board, it was like messy and it had been like the tags looked like really beat up and haggard. And I was like, yeah, that's a board that's getting some use. Yeah. Our company is taking this, this uh, kind of COVID, uh, I guess, respite from a, a lot of work. I mean, we have some gaps in our work right now. And we've been doing a number of initiatives internally to increase our ability to connect BIM information to production, direct to fabrication. And we've also been going through an internal lean uh, initiative in the company. And right now it's focusing on our project management and on our accounting areas uh, in the company where we're, we're focusing first. We're, we're turning this in, not just uh, outwardly facing with, with uh, lean initiatives. So, one of the one of the areas we've been looking at, uh, and we've gotten a little bit of press uh, about it, is what we've been doing in prefabrication. So, I thought it would be nice to connect those three things. So we've been doing a lot of uh, interviews of owners. Uh, I haven't gotten around to general contractors, but you guys are on the list sure. as well. As I've been talking to people about you know prefabrication, modularization, and and what I think is kind of the, going to be the next wave is, is more direct to fabrication. Um, you know, uh, there's a lot of, I don't want to call them futurists, but there's a lot of people in my profession that see the handwriting on the wall. I think that's the right term. Years, 
When, when you yeah, say futurist, can you unpack futurist for people listening if they've never heard that uh, term before? You and I are well-versed and we know a futurist. So yes. can you unpack what that is for folks? Well, it's, it's somebody who's, who's critically looking at our profession and the deficiencies and the issues, uh, uh, daily issues in our profession, and looking at how future technologies and future uh, working relationships can, can solve those problems. Uh, and I think, I think that's one way a futurist is looking at it. I think that's a linear way of looking at it. I think there's a disruption coming, quite frankly. Yeah. Um, if you go back to you know, 1925 or 1930, uh, you and I would be uh, in a, two very significantly different roles than we are today. Uh, I would turn over you know, 45 pages of documents to you to build a 300,000 square foot hospital, and you would fill in the gaps. Yeah. Uh, that was the way it was done. And I think and you'd be on site with come, me too. You'd be on site with me every day. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I think that's going to come full circle in a way. Uh, I think, you know, buildings have gotten much more complicated, obviously, uh, and construction materials have gotten much more standardized. But I think, I think both of those things actually can, can work uh, to create a disruption in our, in our profession, which really needs it. I mean, you know, you and I, we sit in those, LCI conferences, we listen to, you know, 60% of what we do is waste. Um, yeah. And that, that's conservative, in my opinion. Um, it is. I've heard as much as 80%. Yeah. So, so 60% to 80% of what we do is waste. And we're the first ripple in the pond. We're trying to, you know, we're the ones on the, on the, uh, uh, up on the uh, catbird seat yelling uh, iceberg, you yeah. know, <laughs> and, yeah. <laughs> Iceberg. We can, yeah we can see it um but you know the futurists really look at this and there's some of them out there that come from outside our professions that look at this and say well why why are we creating all of this information in bim only to print it onto paper and turn it over uh and then leave it open for interpretation because um, you can't print everything you can do in BIM, no. um, uh, and and I think that I think there's something there. I think uh, uh, with a couple of programs between a BIM platform and a fabrication platform, you can go directly to fabrication. So what needs to change in the profession to do that? Uh, does it need to be a third party who owns that liability, owns that risk? Uh, does it, is it a GC? Uh, is it a different contract? Uh, and is it a different uh, procurement method? And I think all those things are swirling around in LCI and these other lean initiatives going on nationwide. There's not, there's not a, a focus yet, but I think the focus is coming. Uh, I, think we'll see coming. It. I think we'll see it. I think there's an awful lot of uh, uh, need. I think buildings can be built. Uh, I, I've experienced it. We, we built a 260,000 square foot hospital in a little over 12 months. Yeah. Uh, from, it's impressive. Right. Well, it, it, it sounds impressive, but when I went through it, it, it was actually the same amount of work we typically do. All of the stuff in between, it was a true IPD, of course, and all of the stuff between the work we do wasn't there. You know, yeah. it, all the white noise of a project was gone and the team was focused. Um, and it can be done. I mean, it, that was done when we were using BIM on the cloud didn't really exist at that time. 
We were doing that off a central server in our Ontario office when we had at any given time 85 people in the model uh, and all of the headaches of that. That's all gone now. Uh, yeah. the, the technology headaches we had five years ago doing that are gone. So um, I, think the, I think the ability is there. Uh, I think the desire is there at the grassroots level. I don't think it's gotten to the, the leadership of our industry yet, but I think it's coming. It's definitely coming. I, I bumped into a guy at a Lean Construction Institute conference some years ago, and he was operating this space. He, he was working for a family-owned general contractor company, and he said, uh, I really like BIM. I like the promise of what it can do. He's like, what doesn't make any sense to me is that when the job's done, the model just gets put on the shelf, you know, so the figurative file cabinet and no one touches it ever again. And he said, even during the construction process, it's not really used uh, for scheduling. It's not used to plan the work or to inform things outside of like clash detection for coordination. You know, the big C word, the, the word that architects and general contractors and owners love to like talk about what's included in coordination, what isn't. He's like, it doesn't get that much usage. And then, you know, that was, that was three years ago. He eventually started his own little company and he's recently got uh, bought out uh, by a larger organization but they developed a workflow uh, where you do all the same things you would do in building information modeling. But the caveat is you put, uh, put the foreman and the superintendent in a virtual environment and they click and touch and schedule work by touching the pieces in the model. Mm. And then that model, because somehow he had heard about Scrum. Um, I don't know how he heard that, Mike, where he picked that up from. <laughs> and and yeah, things yeah. like Last Planner System, which is an LCI pool planning system. He said, wouldn't it be great if we just pulled and we built things the way that we know they should be built and the schedule reflected that? He said, wouldn't that be great? And I said, that would be great. And he did it. He pulled it off. And so now he has a, they created a program that takes that model and allows the foreman, you know, to get inside of it and touch, you know, with their hand with wearing VR glasses. And then the way that they touch things creates a sequence that then generates scrum tags and then they can actually just pull the sequence through. There's some kind of logic and intelligence behind what they touch and what information gets populated on the tag, like you would see in a typical last planner. Hmm. And the thing can predict based on how they schedule the sequence and the flow when it's going to get done. And it's pretty darn accurate. Now I lost track of him after, after they got purchased, but I just thought there's an individual that worked in the space, got frustrated, and then got gathered around a group of people and solved the problem. That's a disruption, mm -hmm. right? And those disruptions can come like from inside or from outside. And we've seen, you know, most of the, if you look at the, you know, the blue chip stocks today versus 50 years ago, you don't recognize those companies. If you and I were standing back at that 1925 mark, like you'd said, almost none of the top companies would be there today. They're all new companies. No, in fact, you know, I, I was, I was under the age of 18. My father helped me purchase it. But, you know, the, the hot stock of the late 70s was Polaroid. <laughs> wow. Uh, yeah. You know, they were, they, were the, uh, they, were the, they were the apple of the day. You know, they were disrupting everything. Uh, you know, they were, they were uh, uh, you're going to erase Kodak, if you yeah. will. And now they're both gone, yeah. <laughs> which is what's interesting. Is those were the two uh, giants of photography at the time. Uh, yeah, you're right. It, it happens. 
know, then those were, those were the leading companies of the 1970s. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, the, the interesting dilemma we have with technology, one of the things when I look critically at, at how we apply technology is the, the cycle of technological evolution is much faster these days than a building project cycle. Yeah. So you have to choose your technology at the beginning of the, of the product cycle or building cycle. Um, and you have to stick with it um, and changing technologies. And as you said, you mentioned uh, this gentleman got his entity got purchased. That's the other thing is, you know, we were halfway through a very large project and, and the platform we were using was purchased and the transition was difficult. Um, uh, you know, nothing like losing, you know, a, a 35 gig uh, BIM model, uh, you know, two weeks before uh, uh, permit set, but, but those things happen. So, so I think there's, there's uh, you know, both sides of the double-edged sword is we're moving so fast with technology. We get into a project, project cycle that lasts, you know, four or five years, you guys over in California to translate it into your term, seven, eight years. Uh, <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's true. So, so it's, it's very, it's very important to, uh, pick stable technology platforms for that, for that aspect of what we do. But then again, the stable technology platforms are usually the big behemoths that are going to get disrupted. Right. That's right. So, so the startups come in and, and disrupt them. So it's always an interesting way. You know, that's why I think every project we do of size, we always try to do cluster groups. And one of the cluster groups is dedicated to nothing more than BIM and document management and the mm -hmm. deployment of technology. And that's what they do. It's usually the VDC teams from each one of the entities involved. Yeah. And we really don't give them any other, uh, any other role other than managing the, uh, the technology, both in training the people who aren't trained on it, uh, helping to procure the technology we're going to use on the project, and getting an understanding of how the interpolarity is going to work between all of the entities and, and who's going to be responsible for what, a BIM action plan, if you will. Sure. Um, so, you know, that's a, that's a key piece. That's a, that's a differentiator, I think, in our professions. And I think, you know, my company, we're about a 400-person company. We've started to deploy people in all of our offices who do nothing but that. They're not really architects. They're not really from the design profession. They're really from the software side of things. Uh, not even IT so much. They're more uh, experts in deploying and uh, managing the software we use, which I think that's, a, that's an area that we will have specialists who do that for architects and specialists to do that for contractors. That's a great number for of us. Years. Yeah, yeah. Virtual design construction groups across the country are, they continue to add people and the technology keeps shifting. And, you know, like you and I are both pretty active on social media in particular LinkedIn, I get probably, you know, half a dozen uh, pings per year, if not in some months, it just seems like if there's a conference, even more of uh, people, uh, you know, selling new technology, like, hey, mm -hmm. here's this new thing that we've developed. And a lot of things, I mean, just this morning, at like 6am, I got a, a request to connect with somebody who has uh, BIM services. You know, that's actually getting more and more common like the threshold to get into that space is getting easier. The software is coming down in cost. It's mm -hmm. getting easier to use. Like even you and I can jump into a, a model and at least figure out how to move around. 
you know, if not, you could probably get way more sophisticated than I, than I can with your, your design. I, I'm just, but a humble general contractor, like, you know, yeah, actually, you know, what's interesting is, is the company I worked for, I, I started in 88 and at that time, AutoCAD was, uh, interesting. Uh, it was a, it was an interesting oddity. A couple of firms here and there were starting to experiment with it. Um, we went to a technology conference in 1991. So I've been with the firm about three, four years, and we were looking at um, a company by the name of Archicad, and they were doing something really interesting. So what was really interesting to us was uh, they were they were actually creating three-dimensional uh, models. So it was really the beginning of BIM. I think their term for it was virtual building at that time. Mm. Um, and they, I think, were the first commercially available, widely available BIM platform of software. And in 91, we adopted it. We oh. jumped right over CAD. Um, it was on the Apple platform at the time. So we had an office of 18 people. Uh, we had Max in the office and we went started using ArchiCAD. So I created a fly around model of a design for a hospital in Newport, Washington, small community hospital in 2000, or, I mean, excuse me, 1993. Um, took almost, almost three days to render it, uh, uh, the fly around. Uh, yeah. So uh, BIM was something I jumped in right away. Actually, you put me in front of CAD. Most people my age can sit down and, and work their way through AutoCAD. They have a difficult time with the BIM platforms. I'm actually the other way around. I can jump into Revit or into these other ones that I'm much more at home than I am in AutoCAD. I'm always looking for a different, uh, uh, a different way to do what we do. That's what I've done my entire mm -hmm. career, uh, successfully and unsuccessfully. You know, you learn from, learn from mistakes uh, when you deploy something that isn't quite ready for prime time at times. Yeah. But uh, back to the overall technology idea and direct to fabrication, I think the, the key place where we see a lot of our waste is between the time we finish a model and the time that you guys are out in the field putting the pieces together. I, oh, yeah. I think, I think the, the biggest piece of waste is right there. Um, we've got to get away from this idea that drawing sets, uh, you know, stamped drawing sets are the way to do this. There's a lot of things that have to change. Uh, electronic submissions. Yeah. Uh, you know, the ability, the ability for someone in a, in a prefab shop or in a fabrication shop to be able to fabricate um, multi-specialty items, get them inspected in the shop, and then deliver them across the country. Uh, you know, for instance, uh, uh, to go back to healthcare, headwall system. You know, a stud manufacturer can, can build the headwall. Uh, you can drop in pre-made piping sections from a plumbing contractor and pre-made uh, conduit sections from an electrical contractor. And if you have the ability to get that inspected there, have an inspection level there, that would, uh, that would work in all 50 states or all municipalities, uh, we can really start to eliminate the waste and move construction from the job site to the factories. Um, and I think direct to fabrication is, is more interesting to me than, than prefabrication and modularization. Both of those are looking at taking a design 
and breaking them into repetitive pieces. And you have to have X number of repetitive pieces to make the costs uh, pencil out. That's kind of where we're at right now. We're looking at bathrooms and hospitals. You know, if we can get 60 yeah. bathrooms that are exactly right, okay, now it starts to make sense. If we can get 100, yeah, we're, we're cash flow positive on 100. That works. Um, well, I think even on some of that, Mike, the accounting or the estimating as people do it today, um, it's not really on par with what the savings are. Like I've heard the, this conversation comes up all the time. Cause I mean, I was, I was doing a tour in San Antonio a few years ago. We were on vacation passing through and we're on this river tour and they showed the Hilton hotel right on the river. I can't remember the name of it. And that was a done, God, I think the, the tour guide said it was done like in the fifties or sixties. And then as mm -hmm. they put the, the whole, the entire rooms were, were done, even had the bed on it like the sheets were on the bed and like stuff in the closet, like the, the hangers for the clothes were already in the closet inside the compartment. And and that was like, it's just this sitting there in 2019 or 18. And to think that was over 50 years ago, where did that information go? Why don't we keep doing it? And I think some of it has to do with how we account for costs on a project. And just like you're thinking that uh, the way we look at drawings has to change and your mind is just so wide open i mean what you just said about the drawings changing is i would say it's architectural heresy <laughs> because well. i've heard so many people you know defend the the systems in place and here you are the little uh you know the the wild western person that you are having grown up in the western part of the united states and you're just totally wide open to like what's possible and I think that in the same way, we have to approach the costs too, to look at like, what, what is the actual, like when we break that compartmental piece, because we typically in those jobs where they're looking at that, you know, they're already contracted most of the time, Mike. And the way that people take jobs off, they figure in efficiencies based on a total job, like mm -hmm. the whole project, just like you guys look at something as versus, you know, in total hours. So what it's going to take, that's the way a lot of contractors and subcontractors approach the work too. And and to think differently, we'd almost need to see something from the design team as a first baby step, maybe, and maybe I'm crazy, but to say like this piece, this piece is like just, you know, if you just set it in writing, 60 bathrooms with a sink, a, you know, a toilet, a mirror, whatever, a light switch, and whatever else is in the bathroom, a shower, shower pan, and some kind of rudimentary details, then someone could just take that off and multiply it times 60. And then you'd know what that cost would be and then say, okay, figure it built, stick built on site and then figure it built and dropped in from offsite. Then you could get real apples to apples. But when you're already contracted, you've taken it off and someone's trying to go back in their estimate and just carve out those little pieces. There's a lot of inefficiencies getting carved in. And I think the numbers and the ROI, the return on investment is probably off just because of how we sliced it and then we're re-slicing it. And there's waste in that. So like we, we like to tell people, and I think you're probably gonna be on the same page. Like if an owner wants to do prefabrication or modularization or offsite construction in lieu of just, you know, breaking something down after the fact, you're going to get, you know, much faster delivery. The earlier you tell people that's what you want. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I think, I think you've touched on what I've seen on a couple of these IPD projects, even on the, the, the straight, down and dirty IPD projects where speed is the, the key, 
if put yourself in a, a plumbing contractor's shoes. Okay. Okay. You've been brought on board. We have a hundred and hundred and fifty million dollar project going. Uh, plumbing is twenty eight percent of the overall budget, right? Okay. Or so. Twenty eight, thirty percent. I'm gonna get my calculator out here in a second. Yeah, the, the team is the team is sitting in the in the big room and they come to the plumbing contractor and say, you know what, we thought that it'd be really great to prefabricate uh, 100 bathrooms. We're going to work with the architect and we're going to design all of the patient bathrooms to be same-handed and be exactly the same. And we believe we can, we can save money by doing this. Um, are you set up to do this? Full finished bathrooms, tile, you know, paint, shower rod, everything. No, I'm set up to do plumbing. Okay, well, we'll go out to a prefabrication. That person just lost a whole bunch of scope of work. Yeah. So then we go back to them and say, okay, what, what was your bid number or your effort number for these 110 bathrooms? Yeah. Where is their incentive to give you back <laughs> that, that number? And uh, even on an IPD project, I had a, a plumbing contractor pull me aside and say, you know what? We were coming out of the, out of the 2009, it was 2013 and, and yeah. we were up in Las Vegas. I said, I can't, I can't go back to the union hall and tell them this work just left the state. Um, that, that's, that's something we can't do. Uh, and there, there's all these layers in there when you're disrupting a profession that way. Mm -hmm. um, you know, then if, if it actually moves to where I think it's going to move someday, most of those complex components are built off site. And where I think it's going is you don't need to have a hundred bathrooms exactly the same to do it. I think you can actually do unique one-offs as easily if you can move the information without using paper. I'll put it that way. Uh, if you can move that information electronically, and the end fabricator can have some say in the design of the bathroom. Uh, you know, if you made the shower two and a half inches wider, uh, it allows me to use, you know, three whole sheets of sheetrock or green board rather than, you know, two and a half. Yeah. Uh, and we're actually looking at some of that. You know, we've, we've actually been looking at scripts inside of our BIM that help us understand when we're at the planning stage, you know, uh, how many, uh, how many sheets of sheetrock are we wasting in this room? Uh, and I've actually challenged the people writing these scripts internally. I said, you know, a lot of the waste on job site is material waste. Um, and if we, we know what carpet we're using, we know how wide the, the loom is. Um, you know, you, if the loom is 12 feet wide, you don't make a 13 foot wide room. No, uh, please don't. Uh, yeah. In those sorts of things, you start to you start to have the, the software, which can be intelligent. You got to tell it what to tell you, but if sure. you tell it what to tell you, it can give you that feedback at any point in the design process. Um, and I think that's that's where the next step is for us on the design side is actually recognizing at the very beginning of a project when we're laying out walls, doors, windows, skin, floor to floor heights, understanding the components. Typically, we hire engineers who are experts in those components to help us. They're experts in designing those systems. We need to understand, as architects, the, the uh, constructability of those systems, not the design of the systems. And that's where I think a more integrated approach is, is needed. 
And I actually think you guys as general contractors and most of the major subs need to be there in the room when the building's being designed. Um, I know a lot in my profession see that as a huge risk. Um, uh, I actually don't. Uh, I did the first time I went through it. I thought, you know, why am I sitting here programming a hospital with a handful of contractors and other people who have no business being in this room at that yeah, time? What do but, they know? Yeah. And lo and behold, you know, uh, grudgingly over beers the first few days, I'm like, well, they actually had some really good ideas. And then, you know, another month went by and I'm like, you know, I, I really don't mind this. And another one month by and I'm, I'm emailing them questions. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, because the value is there. Uh, and it's like one of, you're, you're touching on one of those things that we say, you know, in the, in the lean space about having a project first thinking. And you mm -hmm. shifted from, from optimizing for yourself to starting to optimize for the whole project to realizing you got to open your hand and, and reach out for somebody to, you know, to help you with that. And you can be helped. And likewise, they want to help. They've got information they want to share too. And and if we all agree that we're, we're putting the job first, we automatically lowered the silos and we have to reach across and help each other. Yeah. Yeah. It, the, you know, the, the, the reality is, is when you come back to your own entity, you have insurance and liability uh, fences put around you about what you can do and can't do. Um, and quite frankly, one of the uh, large IPD projects we did, we spent almost four months writing the uh, uh, contract. What was interesting is we worked under uh, weekly notices to proceed for almost three months while the 11 signers rewrote the contract. And we actually wrote it in the contract. Uh, I won't go into the, the, the boring details of it, but we, oh, we, became, a self, we became a self-indemnified group. So, so a lot of our insurance was collective on that project um, to the extent it could be. Uh, but that started to break down some of those hurdles from our uh, risk management level people in our firms. Um, but no, there's a lot of hurdles there. Most of the hurdles are administrative, in my opinion, and, and risk. Um, but I, I see a time when designers start to circle back to what we did you know, 80 to 100 years ago, which is, you know, design buildings, not draw drawings. Um, the, you know, my profession, I, I get frustrated at it oftentimes. We still kind of pursue our work in the overlay and trace method. So for a, a contractor such as yourself, you may not know what that means. But, oh, I definitely uh, do. So, you know, 1850, uh, kind of the modern uh, way of organizing an architectural or engineering practice began where you had a room full of people with gigantic desks and you moved paper around from desk to desk from general to specific so you always started out the design very generally and, and finished it up uh, the details late BIM, BIM allows you to go right to the details yeah. but we still pursue our projects we array our hours as a profession based on this general to specific, you know, pre-design, schematic design, design development, CDs. Um, I think we need to rethink that entirely. Um, oftentimes I pursue projects where I do uh, final design development room level drawings before I've programmed the building. 
so what I'm doing is I know I'm going to have patient rooms. I know I'm going to have ED bays. I know I'm going to have ORs. I don't know how many or where they're going to be, but I'm going to have these rooms. So why not release that work to the team if we have an integrated team of some sort? Why not release that work and get that known up front? Typically, an engineer in that overlay and trace method, that kind of legacy uh, way we do projects, is waiting around till late design developments before he understands how many med gas outlets you have in an OR and where they are. Yeah. If I can give him that information much earlier, that makes everything, uh, uh, actually in a hospital, you know, there's about 130 unique rooms in a hospital. Uh, most of those rooms have very little variation in them sure. uh, from project to project. Everybody likes to think they've invented the new soil utility room, but I can pretty much guarantee you haven't. Um, <laughs> so, uh, uh, these, these things are relatively standardized. Um, to draw it at a, at a very detailed level day one, before you figured out how many of those you need and where they go, you might have to alter that room slightly to make it fit into a design later. There may be a column in it or a chase later, but those are easily overcome. But to release that work up front, that's where, that's where this, this starts to really uh, push, push what we do to more speed and more quality because you get much more time of the engineers and trade partners looking at those systems up front, costing those systems, understanding how to put them together. They can give you much more critical feedback rather than waiting until the end where I've got to have the answers and here's the DD set. I need any constructability answers in a week or I'm not going to be able to make my 50% CD set in six weeks. You know, that sort of yeah. thinking. That's where we're at right now is we think about drawing sets. We don't think about the, the product uh, often. And that is legacy from the overlay and trace method. Um, quite frankly. And I think we need to rethink how we do that. And, and I push inside my firm. I push owners to think differently about it. Um, I think I told you, you were in the big room one day when we were talking about uh, pull plan tags for the last planner system. And somebody had put up 50% design development and I lost my mind. I, I said, define that. <laughs> <laughs> Is that half the sheet? That's why we're such good friends, Mike. Because you think just like that. I love that about you. Is that is that half the sheets we would have in a normal design development set? Or instead of 30 by 42 sheets, are they half-size sheets of a design development set? Or is it half the work we would typically put in a design development set? And and tell me who asked for it. And if if someone needs to know the size of all the rooms, okay, then pull that tag up on the wall. If yeah. someone needs to know the ceiling heights, then put that tag up on the wall. If someone needs to know where the plumbing is, put that tag on the wall. Those are all easily doable things. Yeah. But to go through the effort of collating and creating an entire set of documents in which everybody needs one or two pieces of information out of, uh, that's, that's waste right there. I mean, Not value add. Got that right. You know, I can't even well, figure out like where we get that from. I, I don't either, but I would look at that. Yeah. I, I always ask those questions because as a problem solver, um, you know, number one is uh, restorative. I, I look at that and say, well, the problem is approval. So what do you need to get approval? I mean, that's just, that's just in yeah. my nature. Um, yeah. 
you know, the reason we, we aren't there is because they're too busy making 50% DD sets. Um, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, we get an RFP and, you know, one of the large uh, healthcare entities in my area, they have like a five page RFP that goes out for a single room remodel or goes out for a new tower. Uh, pretty much the same. They have some areas where they can add or subtract text. Um, we were pursuing a, a very large project with them. That area of their RFP had maybe two or three paragraphs describing the project. So we have to look at what they're putting out there for a budget and we see $110 million construction. So we start crafting a fee off that based on historic yeah. stuff inside the firm. So if we, if we out here in one of the branch offices turn in a fee, that is way outside the line for a $110 million project internally, the phone rings um, and we have to talk about it. So our effort is based on, you know, a risk of we don't have enough effort or we have too much. And then we have to look at the firms we're competing against and say, well, how are they going to see this? Yeah. Have they done projects like this? Do they know what they're doing? So, so we put together fees. You'd be surprised. Um, there's systems for us to do that, but you'd be surprised how much kind of uh, guesswork there is, not guesswork, but how much kind of feel there is in that. Um, and then we don't know who the rest of our partners are going to be. You guys have it a little different, at least the way the, these jobs are procured in this market, is when you're competing for the work, you already know who the architect and design team is. Yep. And you know, we can work with them we can do this, we can ratchet our fee down half a percent or three quarters of a percent with this architect. Or no, this architect, this design team, they're not gonna, they're gonna kind of go old school on us. We're not gonna be able to make some of these, these advances, we need to be up here. And we're, we're the kind of tip of that spear. We're trying to figure out that. Plus there's owners, you know, depend upon the project manager with this particular sure. One project manager, project executive, we're gonna do the project one way, the other one we're gonna do it another way. So, yeah, when we get all said and done, we typically don't know where our fee really sits if we're going to make profit or loss on a project, probably until about 50 to 60% of the way through construction documents is about the time we start to see it trending one way or the other. And That's you know, a long time to, to not know how you're doing. Well, it, quite frankly, the bell curve for an architectural fee is we spend, we, we earn... 35 to 40% of our fee, typically in a three month to four month period in construction documents. Uh, that's where we have the highest uh, burn of FTEs on the project. Uh, and that's where we do it. So that's usually so the for, point. For all the, all the people that don't speak all the military acronyms, full-time equivalent employee. Right. Full-time okay. equivalent. Or we have the most people working on the project at that period. Uh, you know, a project team can go from one and a half full-time equivalents at the beginning of a project, even on a project of significant size, on a traditional delivery up to eight to 11 in the middle, and then back down to one or two during construction. So you can imagine a bell curve going up and down. And if, if the team can affect the top of that bell curve for an architect, we can become profitable. If the team affects it negatively, we can become unprofitable. Yeah. Uh, that's just the nature of the business. It's like, it's same thing with construction. You guys start out digging holes and putting up steel and concrete, you know, two or three trades on site right. where you guys really start to get concerned and the RFIs fly and everybody's quit sleeping 
is that last five months when you're doing finish work. And, the crunch time. Yeah. Everyone calls it crunch time. Right. But it's when, it's when that same bell curve kind of happens for you later in the construction process where you're uh, looking at working weekends or nights to catch up on the schedule or, yeah. or a piece of your schedule went so fast, nobody anticipated it. And now the next sub isn't there for a week. Um, yep. Or heaven forbid a sub goes bankrupt and you've got to replace the subcontractor. That's a one month to two month impact with that trade yeah. and let those down. Cause that happens, especially with the economy, you know, cash flow is very critical for a lot of subcontractors mm-hmm. and rightly so. The, the difference I saw in, for us in the, uh, when we look at the IPD projects, the true IPD projects we did is we weren't asked for a fee. We were asked for a fee estimate. Uh, and that's much different. So we're putting together the project total cost estimate the PTCE for this particular owner. Um, and we had to went through a validation process where we're validating that they're kind of uh, pie in the sky idea of building a hospital in Las Vegas for 25% below market in 30% less time than would be done typically. Uh, that we Sounds all crazy. Yeah, well, it, it, and we didn't even have, we had nothing but a business plan. We didn't have a program. Um, we didn't even know how big it was going to be. We actually backed into that, quite frankly. Yeah, you, had like a, you had like a bed number, right? Like a cost per bed number right. or something. Right, we had a bed number. We had a bed number uh, they wanted. And then we as planners had to figure out, okay, well, that number of beds means this number of CT scanners and this number of ED bays and those sorts of things. But, but the, the interesting part about that was, is we put out a fee number and we kind of based it on what we thought the building would be done and we said okay we'll we'll play the 30 percent less game and we'll take you know 25 percent out of our fee <laughs> and and we put that in as the fee and then we started burning against it and this particular project the ipd the way the profit pool was created is the owner did an audit of our organization uh, they figured out what our profit was on similar buildings in similar locations. And they removed that amount of money from our billing rate. So we build hourly. And for instance, you know, it was about 12 and a half percent, I think is what the, the uh, number was. So they pulled, you know, I was 200 bucks an hour in those days. They pulled 25 bucks out of every hour I worked and that created the contingency, if you will, or the, the, the risk pool for the project. At the end of the project, long story short, at the end of the project, um, we were about $375,000 under burn rate under our estimated number. So this was a learning experience. So this particular owner uh, was happy about that in one way. And they asked us the question, well, when did you know this? <laughs> because this project was done in such a way that the owner, so the first group of savings under the 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 project total cost estimate, the first 10% or the first 50% underneath that dollar for dollar, 50 cents of every dollar under that was shared equally among the team and the owner. And when we got to the next 10%, the owner could add scope in that was on the bubble. So when we made decisions, so the owner looked at that and said, well, the team is now leaving the site and we just found $350,000. We could have shelled another OR to. If you would have told us this six months ago, now the teams are demobilizing and 
and graded savings. We're going to all share the money, but we would have liked to have the extra scope. You know, whoa, there's chalk that up as a learning experience, yeah. right? Uh, that's, a, that's a mind-bending learning experience. You walk in and say, well, guess what? You know, we're $350,000 under. Yeah, you're all happy and, and excited. Couple people were happy and excited. This particular project manager, which you and I both know, yep. um, he looked at me and said, "Well, how long have you known that?" <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that was the like I'm gonna go break the, your leg in the parking lot next, <laughs> right? So yeah, I mean, he was happy like everybody else, but they said we would like to have the additional scope, uh, which would be money. Quite frankly, the way that was working is we give that money back and then they turn around and pay us to design the additional scope. So we sure, still get it. Yeah. yeah. You still get it back. But uh, you know, those, those types of contracts are few and far between. And when you work on one, it really does change your perspective of how you do projects. Um, and that, that contracting type, Mike, that's a technology in of itself. Yes. The whole process around an integrated form of agreement and sharing risk and reward. That's a technology thing that changes so many things. It has a massive cascade on how people behave, how the project performs, you know, what happens when people get stressed, all different from a traditional contract type, more normal contract type, like a CM at risk or a typical lump sum. Yeah. And, and it, it really, I, I would say the technology doesn't, create the behaviors, the behaviors allow the integration of technology into that. Because if you don't have the right behaviors at the beginning of that, uh, those types of projects, they go bad. You know, the few IPD projects that have gone bad can be traced back to, of course, like everything else, behavior. Yep, uh, of course. Um, but uh, yeah, it's a, uh, they are interesting. You know, we're seeing more and more owners creep toward that way. Uh, you know, they're looking at IPD-like, and then they're looking at, well, what if we incentivize a CMR contract for these things, or we go to progressive design build? Uh, and it's good to see. Uh, it's quite frankly good to see more and more owners asking us about that, uh, which I, I do get. I am in contact with several owners on a regular basis, and more and more of them are asking, you know, but how did you get those results there? Or... I saw you put something up on LinkedIn about all this prefabrication. How did you get that to work, you know, with, with all the risk models in that? Uh, prefabricating pieces that have never been uh, done in this market, for example. Um, and those all lead to really good conversations uh, that, that I think will bear fruit, maybe outside of my career window, but I think it's going to be moving that way uh, quickly. But I'm gonna I'm gonna turn yeah. this around a little bit. Oh yeah, because, this is this is a good segue. I, think, I was talking. I think, I think some of the stuff you're doing with that company, which you know from from outside sometimes looks like a a, a monolithic entity. So it's a I mean it's a great organization. It, it's got everything that I need to be happy and to you know to be tested and to be growing and developing and learning like yourself. Yeah, I'm in the same boat as you. And they tapped my shoulder and said would you like to do this full time? And I said, let me think about it. Yes. Okay. I thought about it. The answer is yes. Because I was already basically near full time with it, even though I was on a project. I was, I was on my second hard bid job applying lean principles and techniques on my second hard bid job in a row. And I just thought like, it doesn't matter what kind of contract you have. You can do this no matter what all the time. Uh, 
so it got it got more formalized and then we they had like an idea of what the position would be and then i kind of you know tweaked it and i said what it should be about you know based on on what we need and what what is the objective here because like you'd said you'd work a long time you started you fell on value stream mapping had no idea it was part of a lean toolkit right or a lean tool and method and that was a lot of people like i'd worked half my career and never heard about lean construction let alone manufacturing or even the word lean outside of like you know the body image space where you know like diets and fads of that sort so my job is to set the strategy for lean adoption at our company right we knew a lot of competitors at the time that had had these programs and had made it you know pushing from the top down and like you'd see like some improvements for a while and then it would like trail off i talked to somebody uh in minneapolis on monday a friend of mine from uh, a prior life we used to work together and he was asking me like how have you had he could not understand like how we've had so much success we deliver for the clients and to be able to work with them in that space is so unique and it flavors like what i'm doing in the organization like yesterday i was talking with an architect on the phone one of your competitors and they were just like they had told me and they, this is an exact i'm glad you brought it up mike it, because they said i try to figure you out and i can't figure you out i actually interviewed people on your team to learn what you do and now i'm just and they all told me to just talk to you directly <laughs> and i thought that is so strange i was like it's like you could just call me like i'll tell you whatever like i'm i don't have a filter i just talk no about, no you don't <laughs> i do not have a filter so i just you know you ask me a direct question i'm going to answer you directly and they were uh they were just amazed at like you know what i do and i said uh, yes it just it just comes from within like don't let the microphone fool you right i'm just a human being that talks right like you said i wish i'd known sooner you know, I feel the same way. Like, I wish I would have known this stuff sooner. I would, I would have been doing it way earlier. It's had, it's just a massive impact on me. And I told the person, I was like, it doesn't matter what my title is. It doesn't matter who I'm speaking to. These types of ideas always work. Like I personally can always get better. It's possible. Right. I mean, there's some limits, like I can't sprout wings and fly. Right. There's some like physical things that, you know, until Elon figures out how to connect us to the cloud and we can start merging with technology for all your futurists out there, Mike, that you're, you're talking to, but you know, the limits of the human being, I can actually get better at, and improve my talents. You, you, you can't change what you don't know, right? Yeah, exactly. You, you gotta be told. And typically what happens when people tell you things that need to be changed, you're immediately defensive. So yeah, that's a, that's a difficult thing to do. And like that is just priceless absolutely yeah. priceless it is difficult yeah it, it, you know the company i'm in we we do we do three or four different types of architecture k through 12 some higher ed healthcare, uh and some civic um we find that there's a lot of interest and, and a lot of interest in senior leadership in the healthcare group more so than the other ones uh, we're trying to break those down as we go. But yeah, we, we have those barriers internally as well. Uh, yeah. You know, as a company, we're not nearly as far along. We have two or three of us in the company who've experienced a lot of these uh, kind of, uh, I want to say career changing IPD projects. Sure. 
that we want to we want to do this. We want to take it every project everywhere, and we have to be careful not to hammer it down from the top, right? Um, we're going to do this. Uh, we don't ask. We're just we tell people we're going to do it. So we have to be careful there. Um, we're in the process. I think I've told you this before. We're in the process of doing a lean initiative internally, yep. and we're we're really looking at the project management level to start because we have to prove it to our uh, to our senior leadership and our board that it will have a return on investment. Yeah. Um, so, so where you are measuring return on investment, we're still at the, we have to show you how it will return on investment. Well, I spent and, time, Mike, like to, you know, I looked at inside the company and I even sat at a, at a conference that I think you were at and they had brought in a researcher from Canada that was looking at uh, KPIs, key performance indicators for construction and I, I got, I was just so lucky to actually sit next to him. It was Marku, Marku Allison, I believe is his last name at lunch. Mm -hmm. And I was picking his brain and I said, what has your research been showing you? And he said, we don't have, he's like across construction projects in North America. We don't consistently monitor the same KPIs, even from project to project, company to company. That is part of the, that, that actually is right where we're at internally. We have a group internally looking at, let's not talk about, the, the final indicator of whether or not this worked, we have to figure out a standardized way to measure it. And we have to figure out a standardized way to create a baseline. I mean, really we're having a hard time more or less creating a baseline um, from which to measure from. And that was my one piece of advice is, is to that, that group particularly um, was to really understand that baseline and everything that goes into it because that will give you your KPIs you need to study on the outside. Um, yeah. not, just, not just a revenue percentage per project or hours per project, but look at more critical pieces of what the project itself was uh, and how it was delivered and those sorts of things. So we're, we're, we're trying to create those baselines. We're, we're baby steps right now. Um, and like I said, way back at the beginning of this discussion, we're trying to connect it to couple of other initiatives we have, and that's the technology piece where we're looking at writing some, some software, maybe even, uh, you know, doing something crazy, setting up an outside subsidiary to do some of this stuff for us to help us. Um, but uh, we're trying to connect, you know, two or three siloed improvement processes going on at my company together, break down the silos. It's interesting that we have these kind of three improvements. So yeah. And when I, when I kind of, learn to understand them all there's common people between the three little silos yeah and they didn't really even recognize they were in the silos until i kind of said so what are you bringing from our our uh, uh digital practice initiatives into the lean practice well i didn't really see them as connected and i guess well think about it well i guess there are some connections uh and there's some connections to the project management initiatives and I said, yeah, there are, <laughs> no. we, we don't, we don't do these little pieces of work and then throw them over the cubicle wall to somebody else. We're actually all connected when we do it. So it, it's a, it's an interesting process to sit back and watch. I'm not deeply involved in it other than uh, uh, getting some questions from time to time. And I think that's really the way it should be because we really tried to push it for more from the bottom up uh, to, 
we're going to push it bottom up or kind of mid up and down right now is the way we're looking at it. So mid-level people looking to create some interest at the grassroots level in the company with the, with the younger people that are doing most of the work. And then we're also putting our feelers out up to the senior leadership and we've gotten a lot of good feedback from them. Uh, there's a lot of interest. There's a lot of interest in, in looking at taking some of the success we've done externally and turning it inside. You mentioned this to me a few weeks ago. I thought, you know, I thought you said you wanted me to be one of your first two or three people you had on. I thought that's an honor, quite frankly. Uh, and thank you for, for including me in this. And I, I have a feeling maybe not this particular episode, but you'll have a lot of success with this. Uh, hopefully I've imparted something that, that somebody can take away and this conversation is valuable. But uh, uh, you know, I'm honored to, to have done it with you because uh, I, really, I really have a, a, a lot of admiration for you and what you're doing. I mean, um, I, I don't want to create a, a big head for you here. but Oh, no, um, don't worry. I got, I got family members here that keep my head down on planet Earth. Trust yeah, me. Yeah, <laughs> but, but I've, watched you, I've watched you yell iceberg for you know, four or five years now, and the, the ship's turning, uh, and it's evident from the outside which is the most important way to measure it, in my opinion, is uh, the average person can see your company uh, changing the way it does things. And I think that contributed a lot to what you've done. It's been great connecting and talking with you, Mike. So I appreciate that. And the same for you. I mean, I've seen your organization, you know, a couple of different offices and there's definitely, uh, there's a Mike Williams fingerprint on a lot of things that I see. And I like that. <laughs> We, we try, we try. We, we don't talk as often as we should and we don't uh, share as often as we should, but uh, hopefully we can change that. We will, forward. definitely. Very special thanks to my guest. I'm Felipe Engineer Manriquez. The EBFC show is created by Felipe and produced by a passion to build easier and better. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, everybody. Let's go build.